You're listening to the N2K Space Network. This episode is brought to you by Palo Alto Networks, the leader in cybersecurity. As AI-driven attacks increase, organizations can't afford to have network security that's stuck in the past. Discover how Palo Alto Networks can help you predict what's coming and proactively secure against it with a zero-trust, AI-powered network security platform built to secure whatever, whenever, wherever. To learn more, visit paloaltonetworks.com slash network security platform. It's a touchdown in Utah. Sunday in Utah saw the triumphant return of the OSIRIS-REx spacecraft with samples from the asteroid known as Bennu. It's all the industry has been talking about for weeks, and we cannot wait to see what those samples have to offer. And it just goes to show you, you can land something from space in the Utah deserts. Does anyone else feel bad for Varda Space right now? We kind of feel bad for Varda Space. T-minus. Today is September 25th, 2023. I'm Maria Varmazis, and this is T-Minus. OSIRIS-REx returns samples from the asteroid Bennu. USDOD to transfer space situational awareness to the Department of Commerce. The U.S. Space Force looks to establish a direct line with its Chinese counterparts. And our guest today is Chris Richardson, co-founder of the community Beyond Earthbound. Stay with us. And now let's take a look at today's Intel briefing. Sunday was sample landing day for our friends at NASA. And the 100-pound capsule from OSIRIS-REx successfully touched down in the deserts of Utah with a sample retrieved from the asteroid Bennu. It was then spirited away to a clean room nearby. And today, Monday, the capsule and all of its components are being transported by plane to NASA's Johnson Space Center in Houston, where it'll all be studied. This is only the third time in history that humanity has successfully returned a sample from an asteroid. The first two successful asteroid sample retrieval missions were done by, pop quiz, JAXA, with the Hayabusa and Hayabusa 2 missions. And this is indeed the first asteroid sample return mission for NASA, so yes, still a noteworthy first. So what's the big deal about Bennu, and why do we want to study it? Well, any sample from an asteroid helps us better understand asteroids in general and how they might impact us here on Earth, literally. But scientists also believe that because Bennu is a relatively unscathed and primitive asteroid, it can serve as a time capsule of the beginning of our solar system and help us better understand how our solar system was made and even possibly how life began. And the mission path is pretty cool when you think about it. OSIRIS-REx launched via an Atlas V in 2016 from Cape Canaveral in Florida, arrived at the asteroid Bennu in 2018, and took two years to find a good sample retrieval site. 
In October 2020, you might be forgiven for having been a bit preoccupied at that time if you missed the news, but while we were all hunkered down, that's when the Bennu sample collection occurred. The capsule with the sample started its journey back to Earth in May 2021, and well, that brings us to yesterday's soft landing on terra firma in Utah, and now it's on its way to Texas. And I have to admit, that is the longest way to go from Florida to Texas that I can possibly imagine. The U.S. Department of Defense has plans to transfer its space awareness program to the Department of Commerce in 2024. The Department of Commerce, or DOC, is working to establish a space traffic advisory service called the Traffic Coordination System for Space, or TRAC-SS. The DOC's Office of Space Commerce will manage the service, initially relying on space object tracking data from the Space Force's Space Surveillance Network, of ground and space-based radar and telescopes. The two departments have signed a memorandum of understanding to coordinate efforts to include how they will share data for TRAC-SS. Richard Dalbello, the head of the Office of Space Commerce, told Breaking Defense that his office will be spending almost $59 million in commercial acquisition in fiscal 2024. Of that, about $17 million will go into commercial infrastructure setup and over $36 million will go to commercial space situational awareness data, services, and pathfinders to integrate new services as TRAC-SS matures. U.S. Commander General Chance Saltzman told Reuters that the Space Force has had internal discussions about setting up a hotline with China to prevent crises in space. The chief of space operations said a direct line of communication between the Space Force and its Chinese counterpart would be valuable in de-escalating tensions. The comments on China from Saltzman come as the Space Force continues exploring potential establishment of a local headquarters in neighboring Japan. And to further cement the U.S.-Japan relationship, the U.S. Space Force last week announced that it had selected Tokyo-based startup Astroscale to develop a satellite capable of providing in-space refueling services to other satellites. The Japanese on-orbit services company will receive $25.5 million for the contract to provide refueling to extend the life of satellites and the removal of space debris. And I don't know about you, but I spent all weekend keeping all my fingers and toes crossed that there would be news from the Chandrayaan-3 lander and rover on the lunar south pole. But thus far, the Indian Space Research Organization has not been able to make contact with them. ISRO says that it will continue to work on establishing communications with its lander and rover for the full lunar day, and that's around 14 Earth days. But the team has said that the chances of the probe waking up after the long lunar night are not looking good. Temperatures near the moon's south pole are known to plunge to as low as negative 250 degrees Celsius. And for us in Freedom Units, that's negative 418 degrees Fahrenheit at night. Those are harsh conditions for the vehicles to contend with, but I'm keeping those fingers crossed. A team from the Macau University of Science and Technology has been using the European Space Agency's large diameter centrifuge in the Netherlands to test the growth of fungal colonies under double normal Earth's gravity. Access to the centrifuge for the university from the Chinese region was arranged through the United Nations Office of Outer Space Affairs Hypergravity Experiment Series Program. Andre Antunes, part of the research team of Macau University of Science and Technology, said of the experiments that, quote, 
We are never going to be able to get rid of fungi entirely as we venture into space, so we need to understand them. The team believes that fungi will be essential in helping to reduce costs and ensure sustainability of crude space exploration. Paratus Group has entered an agreement as a distributor for Starlink's high-speed satellite communication services across the African continent. Through this agreement, Paratus will provide Starlink to its customers across Africa as operating licenses are awarded to Starlink in those countries. Starlink will be available from Paratus in Mozambique, Kenya, Rwanda, and Nigeria before being rolled out to more countries across the continent. Starlink has recently announced that it is available on all seven continents in over 60 countries and has over 2 million active customers. SpaceX launched a further 21 satellites to low Earth orbit on a Falcon 9 rocket from California this morning. NASA's Open Committee on Workforce, Infrastructure, and Technology is kicking off session number 11 this week. Highlights include working groups on mid-career development, early career opportunities, and executive leadership insights. And there's a link in our show notes if you'd like to follow along. And for all you budding rocket scientists listening, the 2024 Spaceport America Cup Hero X registration site is now live. Team application registration opens on October 1st for the 2024 competition. All details on how you can register a team for June 2024 can be found in the link in our show notes. And that concludes our daily intelligence briefing for today. You'll find links to further reading on all the stories that we've mentioned in our show notes and at space.n2k.com. You know, we've included a piece from The Guardian on the race to create factories in space and an explainer from the Weather Channel on rockets creating holes in the ionosphere as a result of a chemical reaction between burning fuel and various gases found in the atmosphere. Again, they're all at space.n2k.com. Hey, T-Minus crew. Every Monday, we produce a written intelligence roundup, and it's called Signals and Space. So if you happen to miss any T-Minus episodes... This strategic intelligence product will get you up to speed in the fastest way possible. It's all signal, no noise. You can sign up for Signals in Space in our show notes or at space.n2k.com. Imagine a world where you're always one step ahead of cyber threats, where your defenses are impenetrable because you see what others don't. Welcome to Team Cymru's Threat Intelligence Solutions. With real-time access to the world's largest threat intelligence data ocean, they enable you to turn the tables on attackers. Transform your security from reactive to proactive through accelerated threat hunting and incident response, made possible through automation. Empower your team with visibility and insights to start defending your organization like never before. Team Cymru. Be the hunter, not the hunted. Learn more at team-cymru.com slash cyberwire. That's team-cymru.com slash cyberwire. Our guest today is Chris Richardson, co-founder of the community Beyond Earthbound. 
And I started off by asking Chris to first explain what Beyond Earthbound is. Uh, Beyond Earthbound is a community of artists and humanitarians that are interested also in space. And we're looking to collectively come together to promote uh, space and the units of space and what that would look like for the arts and humanities as we continue to further and further thing um, and right now, this primarily shows itself is uh, we're building a community on Discord. Is we come together as a community, we're going to start prioritizing where we go from there and how we best utilize the resources that we have. Um, we also are trying to host monthly events right now. Thank you so much for giving us the introduction to Beyond Earthbound. I, I just joined the Discord myself, and I was really impressed at how international it is because it's so important that. When, when people say space is for everyone, we don't just mean in one location. And we certainly mean across disciplines and across the world, truly. Absolutely. And we're really focusing on being as international as possible. That's been one of the things we've been doing since the get-go. And while we don't get great analytics on that from Discord itself, we're definitely promoting this internationally for the most part. And as of right now, I think adding the only um, American on the staff uh, team. Everyone else is from Europe or India for the most part, or in uh, Middle East. That's really great. I was telling you before we started recording, this is something I'm very personally invested in as an artist who's interested in space. So this is, uh, I, I'm really jazzed that this this exists, especially because um, I think for many people who are have an artistic inclination there can often be a sense of like, I don't know where to direct my energy. I don't know what to do with this. And I often will hear people say things like, oh, the space industry needs you. But then you're like, well, how? <laughs> what do I do with this? Where do I go? Absolutely. And that's one of those things that as we've been looking at, we've been realizing that throughout the past couple of years, there's been a lot of projects that have come and gone based on the space charts and humanity side, but there hasn't been a lot running in the background to kind of keep everything together and it provides some cohesiveness. So by providing the space and providing this community, we're hoping to provide a little more of that stability for projects to come and go and for people to come and collaborate with one another. Because it's also incredibly hard to find everything that's happened. Every time I turn my head, I've seen another arts project, another humanities-focused project in the space industry that I almost knew nothing about except by random happenstance. So it's, we're trying to build some of that infrastructure out too. So I'm curious what the genesis was for this project because uh, uh, it's definitely a pain point for a lot of people. And I'm curious, like, was there a specific event or a discussion that, that gave birth to it? There was a couple of us that um, affiliated or were affiliated with SGAC that started coming together asking the question of what would this look like if we had this sort of and as we came together, as we developed that, we decided that we would want it to be a little bit broader than what SJAC's mandate is. But we wanted to try to provide that support network there for these different initiatives and for these different projects. Um, SJAC being Space Generation Advisory Council. What's your vision for the long term for uh, Beyond Earthbound? Like, what, what would you love to see happen? So personally, all of the co-founders have a slightly different vision, and I can speak towards some of the things I'm really interested in. So I did my undergrad at uh, Virginia Commonwealth University, and I also worked in the film industry 
before I went to undergrad and entered the space industry. To me, something I've always been very passionate about is supporting artists and making sure they have the tools and the resources to bring their visions to life. So everything I'm doing and the way I'm approaching a lot of this is how can I best support the artists and also people in the humanities, because most of my own research is humanities focused, to see their visions through. And does that mean uh, using a stability of a name to help get access to certain technologies or certain companies for their projects? Does that mean trying and going to get monetary resources where possible for them or providing a platform to boost their own work? Uh, Those are some of the things we're considering right now. And it's fascinating because I'm I'm looking at some of the the different things that people have posted in the Discord, and some people are um, they may have a humanities degree, some people have science degrees, and they're like a scientist and artist both, or they're people who are actually they're doing very highly technical work, but trying to bring in a sort of an artistic inclination, or they're trying to do something like a more creative field of of work within the science industry that maybe for a role that uh, or a field that is sort of nascent starting to grow. Absolutely. And I know personally, through my own experience in the space industry so far, there's been a lot of STEM people I've come across that are incredibly creative and have their own personal outlets for some of their creativity that are also seemingly looking for places to go with that and maybe collaborate with others. Because while they might not have time in their day-to-day lives with everything they're doing, either in engineering or in the sciences, some people seem to be looking for these projects to kind of collaborate on and push forward um, in their own creative spaces too. Excellent. Yeah. So I, I guess that that's a great question then. Um, so who are you looking for to join this community? Anyone that is interested in being a practitioner of the arts and humanities in space. And a lot of our work and a lot of what the community is going to support, we're going to push to social media. And that's a great place to follow if one is interested. And we're really encouraging people to join the Discord if they want to come participate and build with us. We've divided how we interact with the world there a little bit. We're really encouraging people that want to participate in arts and humanities projects that have a space lens or focus to come ahead and join us on the Discord where we can coordinate and just talk with one another and be there. Excellent. And I'm going to flip the question also for organizations that maybe are looking to branch out, bring in more arts and humanities minded folks or, or do something that's maybe outside of like their technical comfort zone. How can they improve their outreach? So if there's an organization that's interested in partnering with us or partnering with the community, we would happily ask them to approach us. Um, right now, we pretty much take you messages through LinkedIn is the best place for that. And we would just post it into the Discord as an opportunity, like many of the other things that we get, and see if anyone's interested. Because we do have the group of experts and practitioners in these different fields that might have some interest in something if they're, trying, if they're looking for someone for those types of positions or those uh, types of short-term projects. I know personally to me, long-term, one of the things I'd be really interested in is promoting more artist fellowships with some companies and the space sector, but that's going to take some education and some 
convincing on the value added that to many of the uh, companies within the space sector, which is more of a long-term goal. Because right now we're just really building the community. What is the value of bringing an artist on board for like an artist in residence or doing some, bringing an artist in for some sort of project? What, what would, if I'm an organization that goes, what's the point of that? What would you tell them? So from an organizational standpoint, there's some really interesting work that's been done here over the years on the creative economy, sometimes also referred to as the orange economy, depending on where you are in the world, has shown really well what happens when you bring creative mindsets or interdisciplinary mindsets to tackle certain problem sets. And it's one of those things that can definitely help provide new lenses to solving problems that might have been seen is an entrenched issue where maybe it's just been the mindset and the lenses that they had available, they didn't see another way out of it that someone else can bring in externally. Um, and then one of the other things is also, it's important the deeper we go into space, the further we go into Karen and a planetary system, we're going to want to take parts of those that make us humanity, make us human, out there with us. And one of those things from the earliest of ages has been how we communicate. And a lot of the ways we communicate is through arts and through some of our understanding of ourselves both in the past and into the future. I was going to ask, what kind of projects um, have people worked on if they've been brought in in that kind of a role? Because I saw that Planet had, I don't know if it's still open or not, but they had some sort of artist in residence opportunity. I'm curious if we know what kind of work that they're doing. There are some companies within the space industry that have had artists in residency programs. And Planet is one of those that has had a long-standing program. I'm not sure what the status of it is. They used to put artwork on the backside. And if I remember correctly, there's solar panels. They were on the Planet Lab satellites that were going into space. And my assumption is that that is still ongoing. Another company that's had a really interesting, long-standing artist-in-residency program that's not necessarily in the space industry is Ginkgo Bioworks, either in the synthetic biology and biotechnology industry. Another very scientifically heavy company and that really has put themselves forward by funding an artist, funding a project. They would provide access to the resources at Ginkgo to create projects. And one of those projects back in the day was looking into encoding stories into DNA, which was really cool. So there's opportunities there to push that forward within companies, but a lot of companies are gonna, it's gonna require explaining to them what the value is. We'll be right back. With over 8,000 threat hunters analyzing over 65 trillion signals daily, Microsoft works tirelessly with the federal government to keep our nation's data secure. This 30-plus year partnership is driving mission innovation that is secure by design. Whether optimizing your existing defenses or tackling advanced threats with AI, Microsoft gives you the intelligence and the automation you need to defend at mission scale. Let's work together to stay ahead of emerging threats and secure your mission anywhere. Learn more at aka.ms slash fedcyber. That's aka.ms slash fedcyber. 
And welcome back. And I'm going out on a limb here, but I can just guess that we all have our favorite comfort food, right? Or foods, in my case, as I have too many favorites to possibly choose just one. But what would you do if you spent months away from it, say, in orbit, and you're only experiencing rehydrated astronaut food? No, it does not sound too appealing. Not if you're a foodie like we are here at T-minus. And if you've ever tried astronaut ice cream, then you know what we're talking about. And as we've heard from several past guests on our show, space agencies are working hard to resolve this issue of space food palatability and are looking to bring more home comforts to the International Space Station. And they've started with a crowd pleaser. Fluffy chocolate mousse is now on the menu in orbit, thanks to the European Space Agency and astronaut Andreas Mogensen. He has been excitedly posting on the social media platform X about a special device that he's been testing aboard the ISS. Andreas posted this. I made chocolate mousse for my crewmates. It turned out delicious and was a huge hit. The chocolate mousse was a test of an ESA and French space agency, or CNES, experiment called Food Processor to see what is feasible to cook in space since food is vital for both our health and morale. At the moment, all our food is prepared on the ground and prepackaged. All we have to do is rehydrate the food or heat it. Cooking food in space could be a big benefit for future crews. I should also point out that Andreas also added this in his post. Now I just have to come up with an excuse of why I can cook for my crewmates in space, but not for my wife at home. <laughs> I just got to say, good luck with that, Andreas. That's it for T-Minus for September 25th, 2023. For additional resources from today's report, check out our show notes at space.n2k.com. We'd love to know what you think of this podcast. You can email us at space at n2k.com or submit the survey in the show notes. Your feedback ensures that we deliver the information that keeps you a step ahead in the rapidly changing space industry. We're privileged that N2K and podcasts like T-Minus are part of the daily routine of many of the most influential leaders and operators in the public and private sector. From the Fortune 500 to many of the world's preeminent intelligence and law enforcement agencies. N2K Strategic Workforce Intelligence optimizes the value of your biggest investment, your people. We make you smarter about your team while making your team smarter. Learn more at n2k.com. This episode was produced by Alice Carruth. Mixing by Elliot Peltzman and Trey Hester, with original music and sound design by Elliot Peltzman. Our executive producer is Brandon Karp. Our chief intelligence officer is Eric Tillman. And I'm Maria Varmazas. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. Tomorrow.